Hello, everyone, and welcome to our 7investing team call podcast. I'm 7investing founder and CEO, Simon Erickson, joined by my other lead advisors, Dan Klein, Max Chatsko, and Steve Symington. Gentlemen, how are we doing on this lovely afternoon? Uh, doing well. And Simon, I'll point out that you just go in the order that we're seeing on the screen, and I always get to the meetings first. There's no preferential treatment as to why, but I follow the Tom Coughlin get to the meeting five minutes early rule, so I'm always here before anybody else. This is true, and you get the first <laughs> dibs on the, on the notification for that one, Dan. <laughs> Our topic this month is about finding tin baggers, which is an intriguing one because when we go out and we find investments, oftentimes our overall portfolio is guided by our largest positions. And those largest positions often grow in size over time. And so we're going to chat a little bit today about how do you find tin baggers? How do you find companies that will eventually be worth 10 times your original investment? In addition to how do you find them, what do you actually do when you hold on to a tin bagger? Are you okay with letting this grow into a larger position or do you trim it over time? We have different perspectives on this as a team, and we wanted to share those with everyone listening into this podcast. We are also joined by Dana Abramovitz, also our seven investing lead advisor. Dana, welcome to the program as well. So let me start you, this with, with you, Max. If, if you don't mind me picking on you first, you know, there's a lot of different ways we can find 10 baggers out there, but how do you kind of think about this in your own portfolio? Yeah, so I tend to focus a lot on drug developers, which can make a great hunting ground for multi-baggers and 10-baggers, of course. Um, I don't actually specifically look for 10-baggers when I'm researching stocks. I kind of just let it happen. Um, and I don't think you have to actually look for micro caps specifically to find a 10-bagger. But I tend to notice that um, drug developers that become, you know, have sustainable outsized gains tend to have a couple of different characteristics. Um, so one is that they have technology platforms and that just means that, you know, they have, um, a lot of ways to leverage their technical capabilities and have a very broad pipeline. It insulates them from failure. It allows them to, um, you know, mitigate risk and spread risk across multiple pipeline programs. And this, uh, tends to lead to also, it, it helps gains become durable. We've seen companies that shoot up real fast, right? Um, and maybe then they have one asset and everyone gets really excited but if something happens to that single asset or two, um, we can see the, those share gains uh, immediately evaporate. So a good example would be like Ameren, right? It's developing like, you know, quote, fish pill uh, for cardiovascular risk reduction. It, it had a valuation of close to $9 billion not that long ago. Uh, and then some concerns crept up about intellectual property protections and so on. And today the company is valued at less than $2 billion, uh, even though that drug is actually having a lot of market success. That's because the company doesn't have a pipeline, doesn't have anything else to lean and fall back on. Uh, so that can um, present a risk to your portfolio. Uh, another thing I look for is, um, you know, companies addressing pain points. And this sounds obvious, but uh, it's pain points are not easy to pinpoint sometimes, right? Uh, so for example, like, you know, if you look at genetic medicines, uh, they address the pain point that we can finally, you know, start to treat the root causes of disease, DNA and RNA. Um, however, each of those, each genetic medicine modality uh, has its own obstacles and pain points in and of itself. So there's little nuances there. You might need to understand a little bit more of the technology uh, in order to identify those. Um, but some companies are doing better than others in terms of uh, overcoming their obstacles. And then third, and this is something I've really focused on a lot lately, uh, is probability of success. 
I think this is what drives a lot of these outsized gains within uh, drug development industry. So, you know, drug developers don't have fundamentals in terms of revenue or, uh, you know, earnings or cash flows. Uh, so the way that we model these or try to predict their outcomes uh, is with, you know, net present value calculations. And one of the biggest components of that is the probability of success. So we try to say, you know, how do these, um, what's, the, what's the likelihood that this asset will eventually get to market? So for an earlier stage asset, it's very low because that has to make it through more development. Uh, and things get de-risked as they mature. But Wall Street is often wrong about new therapeutic modalities that it doesn't have any data on, so it doesn't know how to model them. Um, and it can also be wrong about modalities that have had problems in the past, but then later have technical advances. So it, it doesn't always value those in properly. So a great example would be Alnylam Pharmaceuticals, one of the pioneers of RNAi. Um, you know, back in the early 2010s, Alnylam Pharmaceuticals couldn't get a new paint color for the office approved. And, you know, uh, but eventually it made a couple different technical advances. It made new uh, stabilization chemistry for the actual drug payload. And then it invented Galnac, which is a sugar attaches onto the payload and gets the payload exactly to the liver safely, quickly, efficiently, very low doses, only need dosing once every three months or maybe even once a year for some of these um, so now the company actually enjoys the highest probability of success of any therapeutic modality in the industry by a significant margin. Uh, from phase one onward, the company has a 60% probability of success that any of its drugs are going to get approved. The industry average is less than 10%. Uh, so probably of success when Wall Street's wrong about that, it's a good, uh, good characteristic to, uh, to look for in terms of uh, potential multibaggers. Those are great points, Max. Like you said, you're in biotech, you're in the life sciences space. We're not just trying to find rocket ships out there, We're looking for durable competitive advantages, pinpointing those pain points, and then probabilities of success. So say that you do find a 10 bagger, you find a company that goes on, it's now 10 times your original purchase. Do you de-risk your portfolio knowing that this is life sciences and drug developers, or do you let something like that ride for the long term? Yeah, I haven't had this problem yet, but uh, the closest company I've had to being a 10-bagger would be Replogen, and it's not actually a drug developer at all. Uh, so this has become a larger position in my portfolio than I originally intended, uh, but I've just stopped adding to it and have uh, built my portfolio kind of around that. So that's one of my anchor positions in my portfolio. Uh, it's a nice, stable business. It's going to grow along with the wider you know, uh, biological drug uh, industry. Uh, so I'm pretty happy with that right now. But yeah, I think this would probably be a personal decision, right? If you felt uncomfortable with a position being some very large part of your portfolio, uh, maybe you could trim back. I'm young enough and um, maybe I take a little more risk than others, I, I guess. Um, but I would be okay with something being more than say 25% of my portfolio or, or so. Uh, but that would be a personal decision, I would think. <clears throat> yeah, thanks very much, Max. It's, it's really interesting, especially in this space, when you see some companies shooting up or down uh, sometimes up a thousand percent in a single day, like you mentioned on one of our recent shows, but it's really better to find those those durable advantages. Uh, Dana, let me bring it to you because I know that you follow a lot of healthcare and life sciences companies as well. Uh, Max had a great description of what he looks for in 10 baggers in life sciences. Anything you'd like to add to that on your approach to finding 10 baggers? Well, so, you know, I was kind of trained um, more in venture capital um, rather than, you know, publicly traded companies. So, you know, my background is more in startups. 
And, you know, like, um, you know, in life sciences and healthcare and biotechnology, um, you, you don't have a lot of the, the same things that you have with, you know, like a, a tech company that, you know, has been, you know, generating revenue for years and years. Um, and so, you know, you have to look at things, uh, alternative um, uh, pieces of information besides just revenue and, and sales and all that. Um, and so, you know, I look at um, the team and the leadership and the vision, you know, um, you know, is it the right group of people that can, um, you know, deliver on the vision? Does the vision make sense? Um, the product market fit, you know, so like, what is the product? What is the market? How large is the market? And where does it fit and play in that? Um, you know, just because, you know, if, if people like your product, um, if there's a need for your product, then they're, you know, generally going to buy your product if it's a good one. Um, and so I kind of look at, at those um, types of things. Now, what else do I look at? Um, um, so the business model, so how they're making um, money, uh, generating um, generating that revenue. And, you know, like if it's a sub sub subscription model or, you know, if they're just, you know, selling one thing at a time um, and how that fits into all of that so that, you know, when they are generating revenue, um, and then, you know, just again, the, the total addressable market, like how big, um, you know, can they grow into? And if they're already at that capacity, you know, are there plans to expand into adjacent markets? So those are the types of things that I look at. Look at. That sounds fantastic. It sounds like just like a venture capitalist would. You, you look for some very qualitative things. It's not just PE ratios. It's not just a multiple of, of sales or anything like that. It's what is the team that's in place? What are they doing? Is this really a need in the marketplace? I can see that's something where your expertise in healthcare would go a really long way. Yeah. And, you know, I'll look at that first. And if those like meet my criteria, then I'll look at the financials and make sure that everything makes sense and, and that, you know, that lines up. And, you know, typically it does, right? You know, if the team is functioning the way it's supposed to, um, you know, and, and you know, the, meeting the vision and the, the company culture, and, um, you know, the product fits the market and there is a large market, then the financials will follow. Venture capitalists always have exit strategies, Dana. They want to make sure that their funds have a nice return for their investors. You don't have to play by those same rules as a public market investor. Would you be comfortable letting a tin bagger ride in your portfolio or do you like to take a little bit of risk off the table? Um, I, I, I haven't experienced that yet. <laughs> um, you know, so right now I'm my largest investment. Um, so, um, you know, a, a totally different, um, situation. Um, you know, it, again, it's, you know, it's very personal. Um, you know, me personally, um, I have a little bit less timeline than Max, um, and, you know, I tend to invest in things that I have a little bit more control over. So, you know, again, if, if I trust the team, know the team, um, you know, I may hold on to it a little bit longer. Um, yeah. Perfect. Thanks very much, Dana. Let me get a different perspective on this as well. Dan Klein talked about two people following the healthcare industry. Uh, you follow some very different parts of the market. What's your approach to finding companies that could become 10 baggers out there? Yeah. So like Max, I don't really think about 10 baggers, but I do think is this company growing and scaling 
and what benefits is it going to get as it gets bigger? So, you know, if you look at a retailer and maybe they're operating a hundred stores in five states, well, that's a, a certain supply chain. And then to go into other states, you need to do the hub and spoke approach, which might be warehouses. It might be increasing relationship with, with vendors and trucking companies. As you start to hit that growth and, and have a, a more spread out location, you can see the path to where they're going to go. So those early stage two and 300 location companies tend to not be public. Uh, when they hit public, when they're at that like six, seven, you know, even a thousand number, that's when you start to see how long does it take them to get there? What efficiencies are they gaining? Because, you know, if you're, I'll just pick a random huge company. If you're Walmart, you can go to our Home Depot or whoever, you can go to a supplier and say, we'd like to buy from you. We will place an order for $10 million worth of your product, but you have to sell it to us for 2% cheaper than everybody else. And you have to lower the cost by 2% every year. That's, that's actually a pretty typical term for dealing with a company like that. So a smaller up and coming company isn't going to have that kind of negotiating power. So as they get bigger, what are they gaining? Now, you're not always going to know that. It's not like companies at their you know, uh, quarterly calls say like, yeah, we pay 2% less now for Lay's potato chips than we did last year. But you are going to see their ability to sort of have some clout and know what that means. You're going to see, okay, uh, when I worked in the family business, when I could bring in a full container of scaffolding, that gave me a lot of leverage over a smaller guy who had to split containers and pay, and pay more or wouldn't be able to bring them in as often. So if you look at a company and say, okay, wow, they have a most of the country reach. Well, that's going to make their digital distribution cheaper because you know they might uh, send you in Texas, Simon, something from one of their stores. Uh, an awful lot of retail chains are now doing a large percentage, if not all, of their digital fulfillment from their stores. So the bigger you get, you become a bit of a snowball rolling down a hill. So if, if I could get in early, and I, I will point out that there, there is one early stage retail company uh, that I'm a very big fan of, and I do think the growth could be quick, but even there, you can't build retail stores that quickly. They're, they're very capital intensive. So even, you know, take a company I'm not an investor in and I'm not inve an investor because I just, I don't like the shopping experience, Dollar General. Dollar General knows where its next 10,000 stores are gonna go, but they only open about a thousand a year. Some of that is, well, population shifts and you don't wanna open all your stores at once and not be able to adjust. The other thing is there's just finite resources. You can only spend so much money. So yeah, as a company amps up like Dollar General, it's gonna be a lot faster than say, you know, a Target's ability to, to, to roll out stores because those are so gigantic. But I sort of look at what speed it's gaining. Are they attracting good executives? Are they handling the problems well? Because every retailer is going to have problems. They're going to have bad quarters. They're going to have, wait a minute, women's apparel used to be 82% of our business. Now it's only 62. Is that because we got good elsewhere or is it because women don't like us anymore? Uh, so how they handle those things, you know, their ability to deal with things like management changes. Maybe that's not the CEO leaving, but if there have been 18 CFOs in 15 years, like, like there can be red flags. Now, that's not necessarily a killer, that particular one. That just might mean the CEO is kind of a jerk to work with. Um, and that's, you know, we've seen lots of jerks do well. But those are the things that as a company gets bigger, you get more and more insight into how they actually operate, how they play in different markets. You know, there might be some retail chains. I'll give one that's not public. Wawa is a, is a very popular, very high-end, call it convenience store gas station. And they, until a few years ago, did not operate in Florida. When they moved into Florida, they picked a couple of areas, they dotted in a couple of stores, and they wanted to make sure 
Floridians liked them the way people in other parts of the countries did. And they did. And now they're building something like 1500 Wawa's in West Palm alone. Now that's a joke. That's in Florida alone, but it's a lot and it's quick. Uh, and that is a company I'd absolutely own if they were public. So I don't have a specific, oh, I can see that company is going to be that big because with retail, it's going to be a slow burn. If I get a 10 bagger in 10 years, I'll be pretty damn happy with that. That said, I have some, some seven investing picks that have been in my portfolio for years that are three and four baggers over the past couple of years uh, because we have seen retail move into sort of a winner's win, loser's lose with just a very few in the middle. Uh, you know, your Macy's and your Coles are still in the middle. But for the most part, we know who the winners are and we know who the losers are. It sounds like you're looking for that controlled growth, Dan. You want to see it. It doesn't happen overnight, but, you know, you say have the right management in place. They're kind of expanding. It's working. Everything that you just mentioned. Um, at some point, I'm sure that people are focusing less on the upfront store count and maybe some other metrics over time. How do you think about retail as a company evolves? As a company gets bigger, it starts hitting 600,000 stores, whatever it might be on your radar. Do you look at different metrics or different things so that it might eventually become a 10-bagger one day? So, so there are some chains where same-store growth matters, but there are some where it, where it don't. I, again, Dollar General, same-store growth doesn't matter. Their stores max out at a certain number. They know what that number is. It might move a little if the merchandise changes, but for the most part, that's not the metric. For me... I look a lot at the bottom line. Is the profit margin improving? And I don't necessarily mean what they retain because I'm fine with investing some of that profit into your supply line, you know, you know, doing what companies do to be better 10 years from now, which we've seen with all the major retailers that are winning now have generally done that. But I wanna look and see anecdotally is, are they getting better at handling goods? Are they spending less per item shipping? Are they having an increased uh, average revenue per user, which means their relationship is strong, you know, you know, with, with their customer. So I think it's actually the hidden metrics that matter more. Uh, and we've seen it during the pandemic. There are some companies out there, um, you know, where they have very loyal customers, but our, our work pattern, our commute pattern has changed. So maybe you had breakfast at, at Denny's every morning. I'm picking a place no one would have breakfast at every morning just to be as broad as possible. And all of a sudden you're not going to work. But when you go to Denny's, you're like, I'm getting a two, four, a six and an eight. They have a $2, $4, $6, $8 menu. Uh, I'm getting one of each because I haven't been there. I know that's a silly example, but it's adding on the donut to your morning coffee. So you have to watch those patterns. You know, in the pandemic, things change. So when we go to our favorite stores, instead of spending the three, four, five dollars we're spending most days, maybe now we're spending, you know, eight, you know, eight to ten because it's more of an event. So I watch for all that stuff. I watch for the management explanations of changes. Um, you know, obviously we've saw a lot of like curbside pickup, even at places I would never expect curbside pickup just because for a while people didn't want to go into stores. Well, how did they deal with that? Were, were they ready for it? You know, how are retailers right now handling the fact that there's no workers to hire? Like, so are they, are they paying more? Had they already invested in being a good place to work? It, it, it feels really smart right now for say like a Costco where people love to work uh, that, wow, they paid their workers all along, they retained them. So now in this uh, post-pandemic labor crisis, they don't have that problem. And if they need to open a new store, they can go to their workers and say, hey, could you tell your friends who have you know crappier jobs than this that maybe they wanna come work here? There are some real strategic advantages and, and I would say the last, God, 15, 16 months, whatever it's been with the pandemic, have actually shown some of those things that, oh, wait a minute, like planning and supply chain and, and long-term investing in employees, wow, that really pays off. And those are going to be the winners.
Makes a lot of sense. Those efficiencies are harder and harder as the supply chain gets larger and larger. Same personal perspective question I asked to, to Max and to Dana. Are you comfortable holding on to a 10-bagger in retail? Is it getting stronger and stronger that you'd want to let that ride in your portfolio? So you and I had this discussion offline because it's actually really different in retail. Mm -hmm. I am 100% comfortable holding it if I look at the company and say there is still room to growth. This, to grow. There, this has never happened to me. And again, I'll pick a non-public company just to, just to give an example. In theory, Dunkin' Donuts has reached saturation in New England. It is possible they will hit saturation in the rest of the country and might figure out what countries they work in and what they don't. So is there a theoretical point where I look at that company, if they were still public and say, there's not going to be any significant growth they're not, they already do grocery store. They already sell breakfast cereal. They've tried other things. They're never going to be able to move the needle with like pizza or, or, or whatever it is, or, or Baskin Robbins, which, which they own. Um, and you know what? The growth story is played out. In theory, that can happen. I will say it's never happened as far as I could tell. And good retailers find other ways to operate and take advantage of what they're doing. There's an awful lot that they sell at say, Walmart or Home Depot or Lowe's that they didn't sell 10 years ago. And that's something that we're seeing an explosion of. You know, we just saw that Best Buy is going to stock grills and, and, and other things. Uh, and Lowe's and Home Depot both started selling like gym equipment and more appliances and other things. Will those be permanent? Not all of them. But in theory, I would sell, but I don't actually think it will ever happen to me. Great point, Stan. Thanks very much. And a good point as well about the, uh, the sensitive nature of valuation in retail. Steve, let me bring it to you next. Uh, Dan mentioned that retail is very different than tech is. I know that you are typically a technology investor, but how do you kind of think about going about finding 10-baggers? Um, well, I, I think maybe one of the, the most important points to my investing process is that I I don't generally buy stocks if I don't think they're going to be a multi-bagger, right? Uh, every single stock I own, I think, has that potential. And uh, maybe the biggest thing, uh, the biggest place that I start is finding um, large addressable markets that are either ripe for disruption um, or that somebody is creating a new. So, you know, a, a lot of the companies that I look for that I think could be 10 baggers, which is, again, as, as we pointed out already, kind of an arbitrary milestone, but it feels good, right? Saying I return 10 times my invest investment. Um, but I'm looking for companies that uh, are either disrupting existing markets, you know, whether it's insurance or whether it's cybersecurity, uh, you know, and, and actually you could argue that cybersecurity is one of those, well, 10, 15, 20 years ago barely existed uh, relative to its current potential anyway. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm looking for companies that will either create new markets to disrupt old ones or, you know, um, or just, you know, muscle into an existing market that is ripe for disruption. Uh, the other thing I'm looking for is relatively uh, you know, small to medium cap. If I'm looking at a lot of these, these multi-baggers, that doesn't mean that large cap companies like a, a trillion dollar company can't be a multi-bagger, but we can safely say that the chances for a $5 billion company, for example, to become a $50 billion company, um, assuming, you know, all else is equal, uh, is going to be easier than a, a $1 trillion company to become a $10 trillion company, right? The, the, the economies of scale become much more difficult uh, at that point. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I did an interview with Chris Mayer, uh, the author of 100 Beggars last summer, 
And um, one of the things that he actually points out in his book, um, 100 Beggars, is the average revenue, I think, of the 100 beggars that he studied. He studied 36,500 beggars over the past couple of decades, basically. And um, I think he said the average revenue, if memory serves, for those companies at their starting point was about $170 million annually. And the average market cap was about $500 million. So you're looking at a $500 million company becoming a $5 billion company in that sense, right? So, um, you know, when you're looking at these, um, most of the biggest winners start relatively small. And, and we could arguably increase, you know, say, you don't have to look for a $500 million company today. We you know we've had conversations with our coworker at Irvine, um about the fact that, you uh, Small cap isn't exactly what we what we were thinking of. You know, look back 10 years ago, a small cap company isn't necessarily the $500 million company anymore because we have to account for increasing market capitalizations overall. So I might, you know, expand that definition to include companies that are maybe in the two to $10 billion range if I'm looking for, um, you know, sort of the, the small cap definition. So I think that's kind of changed over time. So um, again, finding large total addressable markets, uh, relatively small, um, small to medium cap companies. Uh, and preferably uh, another thing is, is capable of generating recurring revenue streams. You know, if we're talking retail or restaurants or something, you're, you're talking about people coming back and buying more products from you. Uh, but in the software world, um, you know, re recurring revenue is a big thing. Also, you know, that's, that's something that you can pull in easily in insurance uh, as well. You know, they need, customers need to be able to come back. You can't just be a one and done uh, sale kind of thing or, uh, something where someone buys from you every few years, you know, you're, I'm looking for monthly uh, or at the very least annual uh, recurring revenue from the same customers. And I want them to be able to spend more um, into that last end spending more. I also look for companies with optionality, right? And uh, this is sort of when you get these bonus revenue streams, companies that can expand, it's kind of nice, um, you know, classic cases, uh, maybe insurance companies like Berkshire Hathaway, right? They can acquire anybody they want to and, uh, and tack it onto their businesses and have incremental revenue opportunities or different lines of insurance or, you know, bolt-on acquisitions. But uh, when we're talking about other companies with optionality, take Tesla as another example, right? So you have, um, you know, that one's already kind of been a multi-bagger in its own right. Uh, simply from its its autonomous vehicle operations, but we also have kind of a, a nearly ignored energy side of things with with their solar uh, and energy, and and also uh, you have you know the the car sale itself, uh, but subscription revenue possibilities from the autonomous driving uh, aspect that they're looking at turning into kind of a, a, a an additional purchase, uh, but also robo taxi fleet down the road. Like there's a lot of ways for companies like Tesla, for example, to make money. Um, so, you know, optionality is a fantastic uh, thing to look at for companies to maybe disrupt multiple industries uh, based off of their, their core technology. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I approach it. Anyway, great. finding them in the first place. Yeah, great point, Steve. So you said, you know, look for a large total addressable market, tend to start mm -hmm. a little bit smaller to allow that growth of 10x over time. And the recurring revenues, all, all great points. But tech is tough, right? Tech is a tough, right. complex beast. I mean, even just using cybersecurity, the example you said, we've seen companies like CrowdStrike go on and succeed incredibly where companies like FireEye did not. And electric yep. vehicles, Tesla has obviously done fantastic. Anyone who's not named Tesla in electric vehicles has not done as well. How do you yeah. know when to hold onto uh, to your winners after a company becomes a tin bagger? Do you automatically hold this? Do you trim it because tech moves fast? How do you think about this? 
I don't mind hanging on to companies like this indefinitely. And that's, that's kind of one of those things. I, I think actually it's easier than people think to find 10 baggers. The harder part is sticking with them and determining what to, what to stick with. And I think uh, a key part of that in, in one of our core values here at 7 Investing is, is creating a thesis, right? Knowing why you own what you own, finding certain metrics and milestones that you want to keep track of to determine if the company is on track and, and worth holding. And I don't mind allowing these companies to become outsized chunks of my portfolio because in my experience over the years, um, the, these 10 baggers, you know, and I've had a couple of 10 baggers, a couple, uh, 30 baggers and actually NVIDIA, uh, my very earliest shares, some of, some of those, which I've trimmed along the way, unfortunately, um, uh, I think my earliest shares that I bought are up like 85 times at this point. So, so close. Um, but I don't mind letting them run because I, I think additional multi-baggers tend to, uh, pick up the slack. And uh, so I, I don't, I don't mind it. You know, if I see a company that's grown and all of a sudden it's 25% of my portfolio and, and I look at it and I go, mm, do I want to trim that? No, winners tend to keep on winning in my experience. So uh, I, I like to hang on to them and, uh, and, and let them just continue to you know, stoke ridiculous returns because uh, I, I think that's maybe the most fun part. And uh, it might mean some more portfolio volatility, but but I like buy and hold. And and there's several companies that I've had in my portfolio for over a decade, and and uh, are are pretty big multi baggers and uh, some retirement accounts. Uh, I don't mind not paying taxes on those when I eventually, you know. Um, also, it, it's kind of inconsequential to me. So, uh, yeah, I, I like hanging on. They're all great points. Thanks very much, Steve. We've also seen that sometimes the best performing accounts are from people that forgot they even had their accounts. They bought the right companies <laughs> and just sat on them for decades mm-hmm. at a time. Definitely aligns with what you were saying there. Just to add my perspective on this as well about finding 10-baggers, I, I tend to think of a 10-bagger as the market is missing something really big. The institutionals investors that have $10 billion accounts or more and the algorithms that are following along with the stock market are missing something qualitative. As many of my fellow colleagues have said on this call, they're missing something really important out there that's not appearing in plain sight. And to me, that thing that they're missing is disruptive innovation, which when I'm looking for 10 baggers, I'm looking for disruptive innovation to completely flip the script on existing markets. Um, And I think that this happens in order of magnitude changes. You don't want to go out there and tear out your existing infrastructure and your existing process for something that's going to incrementally improve your costs by 5%. But if it's going to improve your costs by an order of 10x, where you were spending $10 million on something before and now you could do it for $1 million, you might make a change for something like that. Uh, Or productivity. You know, another big one is productivity. Would you go out there and then change the way that everybody in your organization is doing something for a 5% productivity improvement? Maybe you would, but most companies probably wouldn't. But if you get a 10x improvement in productivity of your workforce, you might be much more inclined to do something like this. And so what I tend to look for is, you know, what are these order of magnitude changes that are happening out there at the market level? And then who are the companies that are actually really taking advantage of those? And we've seen this through history a couple of times, right? We've seen these 10x order of magnitude improvements. If you looked at mainframes, you know, that IBM was selling to these large institutions like NASA back in the 60s, this transitioned to mini computers that were then being able to sold, be sold to corporations and enterprises. And DEC, the Digital Equipment Corporation, during the 1960s alone, increased its revenues by 100x by selling mini computers to this new customer group. 
when we look at Ubiquity, originally Ubiquity Networks, Steve, I know you know, remember this company, they didn't want to go after the large contracts that Cisco and their competitors were going after that had huge bids and huge sales forces. They wanted to develop more portable wireless broadband uh, equipment for high-speed internet transmission. And so they went after things like soccer stadiums and universities and libraries and had engineers speak directly with the engineers of their customers. And they grew their revenue tenfold during this last decade as well. And MongoDB, one that my colleague Anirban Mahanti was talking about on the live stream show not long ago. Um, this is a company that's doing cloud-based database as a service. That's very different than how Oracle has done that. And it's... Uh, its product atlas is still continuing to grow at 70% per year. You see these 10x order of magnitude improvements all around. I think that we're seeing a lot of them in healthcare right now. I think that we're seeing a lot of them in quantum computing right now. One of those that, we, that I'd like to point out is the cost of a whole genome sequence was $1.5 million in 2008. That was only 13 years ago. I know Dana Abramovitz is smiling because she knows that I'm about to say that it can be done for less than $500 today, depending on how you're comfortable having your data shared. Uh, back in uh, the same time frame, back in 2008, in fact, most years up into 2010, NASA was charging an estimated $20,000 per kilogram to send a payload into outer space. And today, SpaceX's Falcon Heavy rocket can send that same kilogram into orbit for less than $1,500. Again, another order of magnitude improvement. Another one that you are keeping an eye on of certainly is cloud computing as the cost of data storage and the cost of data processing continue to get lower every single quarter, enabling companies to learn more about their organizations. And so my approach to finding 10 baggers is to be patient, to look for those large market order of magnitude changes that are taking place, and then find the companies that are either enabling those changes, being the picks and shovel providers behind a large trend, or those who are actually using them for their large organization to benefit from. Okay, Anirban Mahanti down in Sydney, Australia. Anirban, how is it that you go about finding 10 baggers for your portfolio? Um, Simon, great question. I don't have a specific formula, and which is which makes these things very interesting because there is no specific formula, I think, for uh, finding ten baggers. But usually, what I do is I have uh, a bunch of considerations that I consider, and I and wrote about this essentially, which says, well, you know, you want a ten bagger, you typically need a large market opportunity, right? Now, uh, large market opportunity is great because you know it gives you an opportunity to grow your revenue but if you're not innovative then your uh, you know lunch is going to be eaten by somebody else so that's you know uh, that's the second consideration you want an innovative company in a large market opportunity um, then you know i look for things like fanatical following right if you have fanatical following what i say is it gives you the opportunity to innovate. It gives you the opportunity to actually do things that you would otherwise not be able to do. And I think that's very important because that's how, uh, especially in technology, which is where most of these 10 baggers, I find most of these 10 baggers, you need to continually uh, innovate and I guess disrupt yourself. The other thing that I think is really important is a mission. You know, the missions matter because it is how you hire the talent. And I read somewhere that, you know, there's always a shortage of, say, software engineers, but there's there's an even bigger shortage of things like machine learning engineers, machine learning scientists. So when you put when you think about uh, building great things for the future, 
you need great people, those come in short supply. So you can only attract the best by having an opportunity that really gets them as an opportunity to excel. And that's really important. You know, they also, you know, people, great engineers also think about scale and impact their work is going to have. Um, the other thing I look for is sort of the quality of the team, the quality of the people. And this is not necessarily about one person. So it's not about being Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. It's about having that structure and people around you. And this is hard to do, but I'll, I'll give an illustrative example. You, you know, and in, in my article, I use Apple as an example. And I think examples, you know, you can say, well, that's in you know, 2020 is hindsight, uh, hindsight is 2020, but I think the advantage here is that you can actually relate to it. But you think about, you know, people think of Tesla as an example, uh, Elon Musk, but there's a lot, there are a lot of people like Andres Karpathy, for example, who leads their uh, vision and the AI team. You know, that guy's a genius, right? And you need to just realize that, you know, what he delivers and brings. Last consideration, you know, we also often tend to think that 10 baggers means we need to start small. I don't think that's necessarily true. There's a lot of 10 baggers that have actually happened from $50 billion size, even $100 billion size, or even $200 billion size. Don't let size, I don't let size get in the way. I try to think of size relative to opportunity. So this is sort of like six things that I think about. What is interesting about these six things is that none of them are quantitative as such. They're very qualitative, which means they're not gonna easily show up in screens, right? This is where studying and sort of, you know, practicing and looking and learning about businesses come into play. That's a great point in there, Aban. I might ask you the same question that I asked Steve, who also likes to look for tech companies for 10-bagger potential out there, which is tech changes quickly. You know, there's a lot going on out there, especially in the software space. Um, if you do uh, get lucky enough to find a company that's a 10-bagger or has increased significantly in value, and it's a large portion of your portfolio, do you hold on to that for long, long periods of time? Do you de-risk your portfolio? How do you think about holding on to the 10 baggers once they get in the portfolio? That's a brilliant question. So I'll preface with something which we say a lot at Seven Investing, which is investing is such personal things. So, you know, this is what I do, um, you know, may, might not apply to other people. I generally do not trim. And, and the reason I do not trim is a large portion of my holdings are in taxable accounts. <laughs> so the moment I trim, I'll have to pay taxes. <laughs> and also I'll have to pay the highest rate of tax that, you know, uh, in, it's not in a retirement account, which has the advantage of lower rate, lower taxation. So I tend not to trim because what I try to think about is if I sell now to make up, I actually need to earn more than what I would, you know, given that I'm going to pay taxes on it, right? So you have to think of the after-tax effect, which, you know, and you should never use tax as a bogey, but I do <laughs> in this particular case. That's one. I do trim if the position becomes too large and unsustainable in, you know, it makes, doesn't help me sleep at night. But I'm also, uh, you know, I do this uh, day in, day out. So I'm very tolerant with volatility. I could run with a position as large as 25, 30%. Um, and I would just add my new funds to somewhere else to basically compensate for that. But I, I wouldn't necessarily say this is something that everyone should do, but I generally don't trim. Uh, the other thing I keep in mind is, and this is important, I think is sometimes you pick a 10 bag up or you think it's a 10 bag and doesn't do anything. But there are many companies which haven't done anything for years. So Disney is a great example, right? I mean, it didn't do anything for years and then it shot off when Disney Plus started, you know, uh, I think Activision Blizzard or something. There's many companies which, you know, have been flat for a number of years. So I think patience is really important. And, you know, and 
if a large position doubles, right, that has an even larger impact on your portfolio. Yes, the risk has increased as well, but even a large position doubling, it doesn't have to be 10 bag, just doubling will have a pretty significant impact on your portfolio on a return, on a weighted return basis. So that's how I think about it. That's fantastic. So again, a couple of the things that Nirvan said, you know, look for a large investable market with an innovator at the front, uh, find a fanatical following, especially for tech companies with a strong mission statement, visionary leadership that oftentimes is geniuses out there. And don't trim those positions, let those positions ride, if not just for tax reasons, because it can also provide outsized returns. Thanks very much, Nirvan. Great perspective. Thank you, Sam. And so there you go. There's five perspectives today from how our team thinks about finding tin baggers, companies that go up 900% and are eventually worth 10 times your original uh, investment that you, that you made into them. Max described the, tax, the tech platforms and the probabilities of success for drug makers. Dana says that she thinks about life sciences and healthcare, kind of like a venture capitalist might, not so much quantitative all the time, but also qualitative factors. Dan mentioned that in retail, it's a lot about controlled growth and improving the profit margins and the strengthening buyer power of organizations as they get larger and expand over time. Steve that says that he's looking for multi-baggers from a large total addressable market that starts small and has recurring revenues. And myself, I added that I tend to look for order of magnitude opportunities for disruptive innovation. So thanks for tuning in. I think this is a really, really interesting topic. We could talk many, many more times about finding 10 baggers and how that can have a huge impact on your investment portfolio over time. Thank you to all of my lead advisors for contributing to this month's team podcast. And thank you for tuning in. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7 Investing. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.